This is the KOTO Community Radio News for Friday, July 14th. I'm Julia Caulfield. And I'm Gavin McGough. In today's headlines, Ilium Affordable Housing takes step forward. A remixed Science of Cocktails event. Eyes to ears with Bella Eatman. And a mountain weather forecast. But first, San Miguel County Search and Rescue responded to an elderly gentleman on Thursday who became extremely fatigued and unsteady on his feet while hiking down Telluride Trail from San Sofia to Telluride. According to the sheriff's office, the man's friend was trying to help him, but the steep terrain and loose gravel made it too difficult and dangerous to continue. The pair, visiting from Texas, were uninjured and brought to safety in a one-hour mission. A new affordable housing development in Ilium took a step forward this week. The town of Mountain Village is under contract to purchase a property in Ilium with the goal of rezoning it for affordable housing. Parcel size is approximately 56 acres. And the proposal before us is to rezone the subject property from forest, agriculture and open zone district to the community housing zone district. That's John Hubner, senior planner for San Miguel County, presenting at a county planning commission meeting this week. The land sits in Ilium, just off the road. The property is bisected by the San Miguel River. Um, The southern portion of the property contains a portion of the historic Rios Grand Southern Railroad right away, which contains an existing recreational trail. The northern portion of the property abuts County Road 63L, and the Telluride gravel operation is located on the northeastern border of the property, but across the river. By rezoning the property to community housing, Mountain Village would be allowed to build up to 20 units per acre on the land. But Hubner notes that's not the plan. The development is planned to be clustered to avoid environmentally sensitive areas like the floodplain, wetlands, and steep slopes over 30%. The actual number of units is yet to be determined, but is expected to be at least 100 to 300 units, which on average is two to five units per acre. The community housing zone district could allow up to 1,120 units on 56 acres if it was fully um, developed at 20 units per acre, but it's very unlikely due to site constraints. Hubner adds the discussion at hand is purely about the rezone of the land, not the development of the property. Should the property be rezoned and the purchase completed, the town would then move forward with, or at least their, their plan is to move forward with development plans, at which time then the specific details regarding density, site design, and and services such as water and um, wastewater would be um, dealt with and as well as any type of traffic type um, improvements that would need to be made. Mountain Village Town Manager Paul Weiser says the goal of the development is to support the region as a whole when it comes to the housing crisis. In 2021, our town council made clear that addressing the housing challenge that this region faced was their top priority. 
I think housing has always been an issue within this community, but over the last several years, it's become particularly acute. By 2026, we're going to have over seven uh, over a 700 person deficit in terms of our housing needs, uh, and we're not going to get there uh, and resolve that issue by simply simply sitting on our hands. Wiser emphasizes a development in Ilium is beneficial to the region in terms of community but also environmental goals. It only benefits our region to have our community members living here. Uh, I can speak to our organization that we have some departments where five or more people uh, from a single department are commuting from Montrose every day. That means that they spend three hours in their car uh, every single day. And those are really tremendous people with a lot of talent. And not only is it not great for their personal lives to be spending that time in the car, but we're losing out on everything that they have to offer by not being in this community full time. Um, I also think that it's clear that all of our regional regional partners have a dedicated um, commitment to uh, achieving carbon neutrality and sustainability. And this project represents an opportunity for uh, our people, our folks uh, in our community to be traveling a much shorter distance. And so we can align our housing goals with our sustainability goals, which is a win for all of us. Several members of the community shared concerns or opposition to the project through written comment. However, at this week's meeting, comment was in support. Anna Wilson owns property in the area and supports the project. I've been paying very close attention to what they've been doing. I've met personally with Michelle and Paul and really appreciate how transparent they've been and how cooperative they've been with the neighborhood so far. Um, So they have certainly earned my trust that they'll develop this property sensibly and responsibly and look forward to seeing what they can come up with next. The planning commission was also supportive while recognizing a rezone is a big shift for the land. Here's planning commission member Galena Gleason. Because there isn't a you know, PUD as part of this process, there's no development plan. Really, it's an interesting place we're at um, in, in voting on this. And we're instilling quite a bit of trust in the developers through de- the development process. Um, there's going to be a lot of these questions that have been brought up through public comment and just questions of the commission that I feel like should be absolutely part of the process and the due diligence moving forward for the development and taking all of that into consideration. The San Miguel County Planning Commission unanimously approved a recommendation to the Board of County Commissioners to rezone the property to the Community Housing Zone District. The Board of County Commissioners still needs to discuss and vote on the rezone of the property. If a rezone is approved, Mountain Village will go through a full development application. Perhaps you've heard the old wisdom that cooking is chemistry. Well, according to Maddie Arnold, co-owner and creative director of Woodier, the same goes for mixology. Really, all cocktails are derived from science. There's so much science involved with the distillation process and just everything that goes into it. Arnold is the mixologist behind this year's Science of Cocktails event, the Pinhead Institute's annual party and fundraiser. Pinhead puts on science, technology, engineering, and math education programs across southwest Colorado, almost all of it at no cost. For its big yearly fundraiser, Pinhead puts a pause on its kid programming and runs an adult-forward event centered around cocktails. Arnold is usually one of a number of participating bartenders, but this year he saw his role grow. So yeah, it's, uh, it's been an event I've really enjoyed the last several years. 
and uh, it's been a competition for a while, but uh, this year they asked me to just handle it. Uh, it turns out trying to write out the science and create three cocktails is a lot harder than just having to do one, but it's an opportunity that I take a pleasure in. Arnold says he centers deliciousness when crafting his cocktail recipes, and the science reveals itself through the process. But over the years, he's also drawn inspiration specifically from different water purification techniques, including desalination. We have an ocean water cocktail that is actually made with water that I collected on the Oregon coast and then distilled using a, an electric distiller, but that was powered using solar power. Last year, I made a cocktail that I actually I harvested some water from Trout Lake, and then I used a solar still. So I did it a little bit more analog, and this time I did it in a digital version. And why exactly was Arnold chosen as the sole mixologist for this year's party? I don't want to brag, but I did win the last couple years in a row. Director of the Pinhead Institute, Sarah Holbrook, confirms Arnold has been a longtime fan favorite. Aside from the cocktails themselves, Holbrook adds the fundraiser is an opportunity for Pinhead supporters and donors to see their impact firsthand. High schoolers who have participated in Pinhead's internship program, which connects young scientists with hands-on learning opportunities, turn out to the event in white lab coats. Uh, And the kids who do the internships get to tell the patrons who support them how life-changing and meaningful those internships have been. So the interns provide our our workforce at the event. They wash the glasses, but then they also are tasked with chatting with the patrons to make sure that they've heard the story of their different internships because it's a really lovely opportunity to mingle. The fundraiser also features food, a bit of molecular gastronomy from counterculture, and a few creations cooked up by the Pinhead staff themselves. Those dishes, Holbrook says, are lessons in emulsification and phase shift. And I will tell you that while we kind of came up with the idea of what food to serve um, on our own, we then went to chat GPT AI and asked AI how to explain phase shift as it relates to the food item we're serving and emulsification as it relates to the food item that we're serving. And we're using those explanations in our booklet that we hand out when the people come and attend the party. From water purification to emulsification, to artificial intelligence, to cocktails, Holbrook guarantees the party will be a night to remember. The evening also features a silent auction. All proceeds support science education programming in our region. Science of Cocktails is Saturday, July 15th from 6 to 8 p.m., and tickets can be found at pinheadinstitute.org. Cheers and bon appetit. Welcome to the Cooking is Chemistry Show. Step into the kitchen where the sciences go. Today we're talking about a favorite from coast to coast. Pancakes are what we love most. A pancake that brings breakfast satisfaction. Most of us will never see outer space, but we can picture it in our mind's eye. This week on Eyes to Ears, Telluride High School's Bella Eatman gets planetarily abstract. Have a listen. Good evening, and welcome to Eyes to Ears, 
This is a Kodo segment where I, Bella Eatman, visit local art galleries to find pieces that interest me, to then describe to you. Today, I will describe an abstract painting I observed at the Rinkovich Gallery in Mountain Village called Jupiter by Margaret Rinkovich. We start off with a canvas painted entirely black, top to bottom. We then add to this shade with a brush of blue, painting until just before the edges of the piece. We then add a healthy mix of gray and green, like a light layer of moss, in the form of a small, shapeless being at the bottom right corner of the piece, climbing upward until we paint in bubbly and circular shapes of gold paint. The commoner meets the heavenly. We add more globs of silver paint beside the golden green, these globs resembling large circular shapes in some resemblance to a geode. And just at the lower center, beside one of the silver geodes, lie another geode, with a light blue edging growing darker as it nears its center. From the geode pours a green and blue liquid, falling below the frame. Most of the upper right of the canvas is consumed by a jaded yellow and green beast, amorphous in shape with a blotch of orange closest to the blue geode, serving as the creature's heart in my eyes. And all throughout the canvas is a trail of oil pastel scrawlings of blue, cyan, and yellow orange. Starting a path above the jade beast, and thus going every which way from around the gold paint in between the geodes and beneath the jade beast once more. Thank you for tuning in, folks. Visiting this gallery was quite enjoyable, so I do recommend you go check it out for yourself if you wish to. Perhaps you'll find it and find out if you don't see the Jupiter painting the same way I do, which is more than likely. Observing the piece the way I was, I found that I see abstract paintings the way a lot of people do. But that isn't the concrete answer. Observe an abstract painting. Find what the shapes and strokes of color mean to you. What sorts of things could you interpret from that which you can't describe as easily as you usually would? It'll strengthen your view and creativity, I'm sure. But this has been Eyes to Ears on Kodo. My name is Bella Eatman, and I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. Runners in the Hard Rock 100 took off early this morning, Friday the 14th, from Silverton. The Ultra Marathon's 100-mile course climbs roughly 30,000 feet in its entirety, taller than Everest, and covers some of the most rugged and varied terrain in the San Juans. The average finishing time for the 146 racers is around 40 hours, with top finishers wrapping up the course in around 25. The course alternates direction each year and is being run counterclockwise this summer. Racers will descend into Telluride late in the race, passing the Town Park aid station at around mile point 80 before ascending the Bear Creek Trail and continuing over Wasatch to Ophir. 
Entry into the race is a brutal competition itself. Due to permitting restrictions on high country terrain, the number of racer spots is extremely limited. Competitors are chosen through a lottery process, with some advantage given to veteran finishers. This year, over 2,400 runners from around the globe applied for only 146 spots. So, in one sense, for the racers running one of the most grueling competitions of its kind, everyone is already a winner. The Telluride region is full of history. It's also full of gorgeous hiking trails. Why not bring them together? The Telluride Historical Museum's Hike into History program offers the opportunity to bring history into the outdoors. This week, the museum announced its summer lineup for the special tours. Kicking off the series on August 5th, the local guides Connie Coulter and Dalen Stephen will explore the lesser-known trails around Woods Lake. Participants will dive into the history of the area and learn about wildflowers and edible plants. On August 19th, Sheep Mountain Alliance guides will lead a hike through the lower portion of the Snuffles High Line to share insight on Sheep Mountain's environmental advocacy work. The final summer adventure will be a Jeep excursion slash hike on September 23rd with mining historian Rudy Davison exploring Corkscrew Gulch Turntable over Overpass and a narrow gauge railroad remnant near the ghost town of Ironton. Tickets for the Hike into History events are available at TellYourRedMuseum.org. A top Colorado River official is leaving the Interior Department. KUNC's Alex Hager reports that Tanya Trujillo's departure comes amid ongoing work to solve the river's supply-demand imbalance. Trujillo is the Assistant Secretary for Water and Science. She's been with the Interior Department for about two years, advising federal policymakers through difficult negotiations about how to share the Colorado River, which is shrinking due to climate change. During that time, Interior worked with seven western states to curb water use. The parties haven't come up with substantial or long-lasting reductions to water demand, though, and still face pressure to agree on new rules by 2026. Trujillo's departure was first reported by the Associated Press. She told the AP it made sense to leave now as the Biden administration prepares for a re-election campaign. The Interior Department declined KUNC's request for comment. Alex Hager, KUNC. Tens of thousands of victims and survivors of the Holocaust are being honored in Germany. It's part of a three-decades-old grassroots effort to create the world's largest decentralized memorial by placing special stones at the sites where residents once lived and welcoming back their families. Those behind the movement say it's especially important right now to remember the atrocities of the past. In recent years, both Germany and the U.S. have seen a rise in anti-Semitism. KHOL and Rocky Mountain Community Radio reporter Hannah Mersbach descends from a Jewish family who fled the Nazis in World War II. She recently traveled to Germany to take part in one of the ceremonies and documented her experience. On a residential block outside of downtown Frankfurt, about 40 people gather on the sidewalk. My dad, brother, and I flew out for a memorial for members of my family, the Merzbachs, or as the Germans say it, the Matzbas. That's my cousin, Bob Jesselson from South Carolina, playing the cello. He's a self-proclaimed historian of the family. 
He points to the small brass plaques being installed on the walkway called Stolpersteine, or stumbling stones. So the idea is that as you walk along the sidewalk, you see the names of the people who live there and you stumble over them. You don't really stumble over them because they're flat. Some stones honor people who died in the Holocaust. Others are for those like my grandfather's family who had to leave Germany. We're standing in front of where they used to live. Today, birds chirp and trees blow in the wind, but Jesselson says the neighborhood wasn't always so peaceful. The house doesn't exist anymore. It was all bombed during the war. Looking at the new concrete apartment buildings hovering above, it's hard for me to imagine what Frankfurt could have looked like then. When I was growing up in Los Angeles, my grandfather didn't talk much about what he went through. But on this trip, I learned that his father narrowly escaped a concentration camp and that the family got out mere months before the Second World War broke out. Then they assimilated to life in the U.S. and never moved back to Germany. Now, German citizens are honoring this history. The Germans are the ones who paid for it and sponsored it. There's the artist Günter Demnig, who's the person who's responsible for starting this whole endeavor many years ago. Günter Demnig is kneeling down, cementing the stones into place. He's a silver-haired man in a flat-brimmed hat with a denim shirt and a thick German accent. He says, as opposed to mass memorials, this project is all about commemorating individuals. It is important to bring back the names. A man is forgotten when his name is forgotten. My grandfather's stone reads, Here Vonta, here lived Wilhelm Merzbach. It's now one of 100,000 stones Demnisch has laid across Europe. He started that effort 30 years ago. And now the name is back, and that's very important. Demnisch says the stones honor all people persecuted under the Nazi regime. That includes Jews, like my family, but also people oppressed because of their sexual orientation or political beliefs. I think it's important for the young people. People really want to know how could this happen and please never happen again. A recent nationwide survey in the U.S. found that two-thirds of young adults are unaware that six million Jews were killed in the Holocaust. Frankfurt resident Sibylle Steiner is part of the grassroots movement to help remember victims of the Holocaust. She sponsored my family's stones. There were some emotional connections. Steiner, who mostly speaks German, says my family's story reminds her of her own, who were persecuted for their political beliefs. And she's worried about the future. I'm very, very interested in this history. And I don't want that uh, right people in Germany, in the USA, in every country will not gather again. Martin Dill runs the Stolpersteiner Initiative in Frankfurt. He says he sees trends today that happened leading up to the Holocaust. It happened uh, from racism. It happened from nationalism. It happened from, from chauvinism. It happened from anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism has been on the rise in recent years in both Germany and the United States. Last year, the Anti-Defamation League counted the highest number of anti-Semitic acts in the U.S. since the group started keeping track 40 years ago. And just recently, the Biden administration introduced the country's first strategic plan for combating the growing problem. Germany introduced a new strategy to fight anti-Semitism last year. The right-wing politicians, the anti-democratic politicians, 
they are on the rise again. And therefore, we have to, to remember where this road might end. Dill's hosting a Schopersteiner reception, where about 25 families, including mine, are being honored at a Jewish elementary school in Frankfurt. Many of our parents and grandparents used to go there. Descendants stand up and tell their stories beneath banners with Hebrew prayers. They came from across Europe and the U.S. for this reception. Many of their stories sound like that of my own family. Father, where time stones? We welcome the Lovers families from Memphis, New York, and LA, and the Wear Time. Family. My cousin Bob Jasselson, the historian, stands before the crowd and reads a poem about the meaning of the stumbling stones, or Stolpersteine. When we stumble on the Stolpersteine, we step through time to a distant past. We can see our parents as young children. We can hear their voices and the sound. He says our families lived there for generations, and we're proud to be German. How did it feel for them to lose everything? Were they scared? Were they excited by the prospects of the future? Were they sad to be leaving? And for those who gathered at the grocery The answers to those questions, we may never know. But I did walk away from Germany with some other answers about my family's history, where they lived, what that could have looked like, and how they left. And thanks to this trip, those stumbling stones are sparking new family conversations. From KHL News, I'm Hannah Mersbach, and in German, Hannah Merzbach. The National Weather Service forecast for the western San Juans calls for clear skies tonight with a low in the high 40s. Saturday should be sunny with a high near 85 degrees, followed by a clear night and a low around 45. Sunday should be sunny and hot with a high near 90 degrees, and Sunday night should be clear with a low near 50. This has been the news for Friday, July 14th. Thanks for listening. If you have a story idea or a news tip, call the news team at 970-728-3206.